grab your Bibles and turn to Psalm chapter 62, which we have sung about already this morning, and now we're going to work through in our study of God's Word this morning. Uh, we're continuing on in our series uh, called uh, Pilgriming with the, Through the Psalms, or Pilgriming with the Psalms. We're hitting on some of the themes there and the aspects of the experiences, and particularly the emotional experiences of the Christian life. And we have dealt with a number of them, doubt and fear and guilt. This morning we come to the experience of waiting, that the Christian life is waiting. And that is indeed what it is. Brothers and sisters, we are a waiting people. It's almost inherently who we are as Christians. Waiting on God is a regular aspect of faith. It's inherent to it. It's an expression also of our longing for God. We are waiting on the Lord, waiting on the Lord to come and provide for us, waiting on the Lord in his blessings. And if you actually, if you, once you begin to read the scriptures with eyes for this term or this theme of waiting, you see it everywhere. Let me just run a few of these in front of you. Psalm 25, 5, David says, lead me in your truth and teach me for you are the God of my salvation. I will wait for you all day long. Psalm 25, 21, my integrity and uprightness preserve me. For I wait for you. Psalm 38, 15. For you, O Lord, I do I wait. It is you, O Lord, my God, who will answer. And Psalm 130, my soul waits for the Lord more than watchmen wait for the morning. It is everywhere. In the Old Testament, they waited, didn't they? They longed and they waited for a Messiah. They waited for the day in which the one who would reveal the mystery of the gospel, how in the world can sheep... Uh, be the means of covering God's justice and wrath and he displaying God's love for us? Well, it can't. God, how are you going to reveal that to us? We're waiting to hear from you. In fact, this is what we see in the Gospels when Jesus is an infant and a young boy and he comes to the temple. There are two people, Simeon and Anna, who said they have waited their entire lives to see the Messiah. In the church age, we wait as well. We wait with eager expectation for God to come. We are in what is theologians call the already and the not yet, in which we have experienced and we have seen some aspect of the gospel. We are experiencing God's blessing and his redemption, but only in some small parts. It is already in our lives, but we wait for the consummation of that redemption at the end of all things. That's the not yet, when everything will be made new and made right. The church for two millennia has endured Waiting, We are a waiting people, waiting for the revealing of the Lord Jesus Christ, as it says in 1 Corinthians 1. We're waiting like all creation. It says in Romans that all creation groans, waiting for the revealing of God's redemption. And so we wait. This morning we come and look at this idea of waiting, and we use Psalm 62 and allow David to help us learn how to wait together. So hear God's word, picking up. In the title there, the choir to the choir master, according to Jaduthan, a psalm of David. For God alone my soul waits in silence. From him comes my salvation. He alone is my rock and my salvation, my fortress. I shall not be greatly shaken. How long will all of you attack a man to batter him like a leaning wall, a tottering fence? They only plan to thrust him down from his high position. They take pleasure in falsehood. They bless with their mouths, but inwardly they curse. Selah. For God alone on my soul wait in silence, for my hope is from him. He only is my rock and my salvation, my fortress. I shall not be shaken. On God rests my salvation and my glory. 
my mighty rock, my refuge is God. Trust in him at all times, O people. Pour out your heart before him. God is a refuge for us. Those of low estate are but a breath, and those of high estate are a delusion. In the balances they go up, they are together lighter than a breath, but put no trust in extortion. Set no vain hopes on robbery. If riches increase, set not your heart on them. Once God has spoken, twice I have heard this, that power belongs to God, and that to you, O Lord, belongs steadfast love, for you will render to a man according to his work. This sends the holy reading of God's words. It's holy, it's infallible, and it's inerrant. May the grass wither and the flower fade, but the word of God, may it stand forever. Waiting, waiting. Waiting is the extremely difficult thing, and that's what we want to look at first. Waiting is very difficult. In fact, waiting is a form of suffering. Those of us who are waiting for the longing for the, to see the day of God's returning, of Jesus' coming back and making all things new, waiting is a form of suffering. Waiting for that day of consummation. I think there's a, a number of ways in which waiting is difficult for us. Waiting is first and foremost difficult. It, it is, it, difficulty of waiting is found in the fact that it's, there is a pain in the longing. There's pain in the longing, the unmet desires. We all long for something in this world. We long either for maybe bad things, painful things to come to an end, or we long for good things to come into our lives, for some joy and blessedness. So whether we wait for some aspect of our life life to be fixed or simply some aspect of our life to be improved and blessed, we are waiting. But both of these forms of waiting involve pain inherently. There's pain in the longing. Now, don't get me wrong. There is pleasure as well. The pleasure of anticipation is there as well. The joy of saying, I look forward to the day. Those of you, some of you had this mindset and you need this. My wife is one of those people who she needs something to look forward to. And so many of us, we have the anticipation, the longing, and the joy of looking forward to things. But there's also a pain as we wait. The psalmist says here in verse 3, He starts out, verse 3, saying, how long, which indicates that he, as the sufferer, has been long in this pain, and it expresses his belief that enough is enough. I have waited long enough. I'm tired of this waiting for God to provide. And in this case, David is going through an issue where he is being gossiped about and slandered. Uh, I'm not really concerned this morning about the specific circumstance that David is dealing with here. It's enough to know that he is longing for God's provision to deal with this particular hardship, to bring an end to this form of suffering in his life. For this is the situation that David finds himself in. He cries out to the Lord saying, how long? Enough is enough, God. And so the question very much for us is, what is the difficulty of longing for us And this enough is enough? What are the things in your life that you look around and you go, enough, God. I've waited long enough. One of the great blessings we have, we announced another one this week. We, should have, we need a whole new section to our email that just says, this week's new baby. <laughs> Caroline Reynolds had a, had a baby this week. And, and it's some people, have, I've heard some people say, man, there's... There must be something in the water at King's Chapel. And that is, that is probably a very true statement. Uh, there's something weird going on here with all the babies that we have. But we also must be sensitive when we say things like that, shouldn't we? Something in the water would assume that, well, if you just come to King's Chapel, God will bless you. We have holy Kabbalah water that will impregnate you immediately if you are struggling with infertility. 
You see, we must be sensitive because the reality is it's not, it's not necessarily something in the water because there are those in our church who are desperately waiting and they have said, God, enough is enough. I'm longing for a child. Where's the baby I so greatly desire? They're waiting for a child. Some of you are waiting for other things, physical ailments. You're wanting to feel better again. And you're going, God, okay, could, could something else, what next on my body is going to go wrong? Something else in my body, your financial world. Some of you, you feel like Murphy's Law applies only to you, right? If it can go wrong, it will go wrong. What else in my house can break this week? How long will I live on the financial bubble wondering when I'm finally going to just keel over and my financial world will collapse entirely? God, how long? When will it be when I have to worry about my financial world? What about the parents? You're waiting, right? Waiting for that rebellious, strong-willed child to finally get it. And you literally find yourself, you haven't been here as a parent yet, you will, in which you may say at first to your child, son, how long, how many times am I going to tell you not to hit your sister? And then you go to God, God, how long will my child rebel against me? You parents who have older children who rebelled against the Lord, you're asking the same question, how long, God, will my child run away from you? When will they return? The single person, right? They're often who we think of, who are those who are waiting. A person who longs to be married, that is a gift from God. Marriage is a blessing. It is God's gift to us in this world. It is a good thing to desire to be married. And there are many in our church who long to be married, and God has yet to provide that spouse for them. And they are asking, as the years of their 20s tick by, they're asking how long. In their 30s and their 40s, when, God, will you provide the spouse that I so desperately long to be connected to? Some of you are longing your marriage. When's my spouse going to change? You're waiting. That spouse who you've, in, you've persevered with, 10, 15, 20 years of waiting. When will they finally be the person who I thought I was marrying? When will that, that, this spouse lose that addictive behavior or they stop doing those behaviors that undercut our intimacy? What about your work world? When will I finally get that raise that I deserve? I'm waiting, God. I'm waiting for that job that I desperately need. You teenagers are waiting, right? Every day you wake up and you go, look at the mirror, when? When is the day I will wake up and there will be no more, no more pimples, right? The answer is never, it just moves. <laughs> The answer is never. So God's given you an answer. The answer is no. You've waited. They're just going to move. When, Lord? When, when, Lord? Oh, when will I get my braces off? When, God, will I finally learn the socially acceptable thing to say? When will I finally learn to get... When will I finally get, get out from my parents' authority, the encumbrance of the injustice that I live under? Some of us more seriously are looking or asking, how long, Lord? Man, if you've... You have, I, feel like I, I feel like every week there's a new reason to say, Kyrie, Kyrie, come Lord Jesus. Come Lord Jesus. How long, God? Will injustice reign? Will the just and the right and the truthful be swiped from this world? How long will evil be done? How long? Enough is enough, Jesus. The pain of longing for these days, that's part of the difficulty. The other part of the difficulty, though, is found in the unknowns, isn't it? Waiting is difficult because you don't know when it's going to stop. Waiting is very, Proverbs 13, 12 says this, a hope deferred 
makes the heart sick, but a desire fulfilled is a tree of life. When David asks how long, he is not simply saying enough is enough, but he's also asking, when is this going to come to an end? He doesn't know. There is no end in sight to my suffering or no end in sight to when that joyous thing that I so desperately want is actually going to come into my life. And it makes us sick to have the things that we have hoped for deferred, pushed further and further down the pathway of our lives. It is difficult to wait because we don't know when we're going to be done waiting. How long, O Lord? You know, it would be so much better when we ask God for things if he would just give us a clear answer, wouldn't it? There's no, there's yes, and then there's wait. And wait stinks. No, it, no, God, I long for a child. I, I'm, I'm desperate for a child. I want, to be impre- I want to be pregnant. I want to be a mother. I want to be a father. What if God says no? Well, at least you know the answer. And you're not going through the emotional turmoil month after month of the answer being, no, not yet. God would just say, no, no, you're you're never going to have a child. At least then you could grieve, you could lament, and you could move forward with your life. Yes, yes is great, right? Because you get what you want. The wedding is over. The answer is yes, I'm going to give it to you. But wait, wait is incredibly painful because we don't know ultimately what the answer is going to be. We don't know when it's going to come. Wait, waiting is difficult because we don't know. When will it come to an end? Third, waiting is difficult because of our role in waiting. Waiting is difficult because of our role. The, the reality, the real, real difficulty of waiting is this, is that if you're going to wait rightly, here, what's, what's the number one thing you have to do if you're going to wait rightly? You have to wait. Because if you stop waiting, you're not waiting anymore, Right? The answer of what to do when you're tired of waiting, according to God's word, is go ahead and wait some more. That's the answer, and this is the great difficulty of waiting. We want, here's what we want. God, yes or no, wait is not good. Give me an answer. Give me 11 action steps that I will do, and then I'll have the answer. Then I'll know I can achieve what I long to have, this longing desire I have for the future. God says, no, no, no action steps for you. Your job is to sit And to wait. You wait. Waiting in the scriptures is not an accident, brothers and sisters. It is a command. And it's integral to your acting out and living into submission to God's will for your life. Listen to just a run of these passages again in the Psalms. Psalm 27, 14. These are all imperatives and commands. Wait for the Lord. Be strong and let your heart take courage. Wait for the Lord. The reason why waiting and courage are put together is because waiting takes unbelievable courage. It's like, it's like, ever seen, I've been been watching Turn, right, which is a revolutionary revolutionary war uh, kind of show in which they'll have scenes of the battles where, you know, the the American warriors and the the British soldiers will face each other and they're across an empty field, right? Every time you you watch it, you go, this is the dumbest act of warfare I've ever seen in my life. And they line up in a row, and they shoot. And eventually people start running towards the other people. And what is it? What is it? You always have a scene where it's like, hold the line. Don't fire yet. Don't fire yet. Wait. That takes courage, right? When people are running after you with knives and bullets and guns, and they're going, nope, wait, wait, wait. Incredible strength to wait. Psalm 31, 24, be strong. Again, strength. Let your heart take courage, all of you who wait for the Lord. Psalm 37, 7, be still before the Lord and wait patiently for him. 
Verse 9 of chapter 37, For the evildoers shall be cut off, but those who wait for the Lord shall inherit the land. And one more verse from Psalm 37, Wait for the Lord, imperative again, and keep his way. Obey him. Keep on the, the path of waiting. Man, this is, this is the parents, right? Waiting is so difficult to have courage and strength to do this. Waiting, here's the scene that when I think of a waiting that God calls us to do. Is I, see, I think of a parent, of how painful and how difficult it is to wait in this way, is the parent who have, has a child who has a great sickness, and they have done everything they can. They've acted. They've done all they can do. They've taken him to the best doctors, and now they sit in the hospital room, and all, what can all the parents do? Wait. It is, it is awful, right? Don't we long to have something where we can take control of the situation and do something And yet the act of faith that God calls us to carry out is to wait, to submit to his will for our lives in this moment. But David reveals something else about waiting that is not merely holding tight and faithfully carrying on in obedience, but David actually talks about wanting, about waiting in terms of the disposition of the soul. Do you see what it says in verses 1 and verse 5? He talks about this. He says, I wait in silence. I wait in silence. This is the second thing we're going to look at, the silence of waiting. The Hebrew word here for waiting literally means this, rest. It means rest. In verse 1, this means his soul is at rest as he waits. His soul is not shouting and screaming. Resting is not because there is not need for provision. It's actually in the face of his need for provision that yet in that moment he's still able to rest, to be quiet now, there's a different word, interestingly enough, in verse 5 in, he, in, in the Hebrew. It uses a different word. In verse 1, David says, my disposition of my soul is one that is resting and it's quiet. In verse 5, though, he actually tells his soul, be quiet. What David is referring to here is the murmur of the soul. You have this experience that you get quiet even if you go into, to God in prayer. What happens? You find the crushing of all the things you're thinking about, all the things that you're longing for, all the desires that are there, all the things swirling around your head hits you in those moments. It is the inner monologue of your soul that is seemingly never silenced, that is frustrated and that is agitated. We, are, we get in prayer, and what is it we often want to do? We pray, we, we, God, I want to see this, but as soon as we, I have to literally keep my to-do list next to me when I pray, because I have so many things that instead of waiting silently for the Lord, I, so often I found that my, that my prayer time gets interrupted because I go, oh, wait, i got to send that email. Gone. There goes prayer time. I'm not waiting. I'm rushing off. I think a great image that helps us understand the difference between a soul at rest in God's presence and a soul that is busy, that is murmuring in God's presence, is a depiction of Mary and Martha in the Gospels. What we have there, we have Martha. She's in Jesus' presence, isn't she? Just like you and I, we go to God in God's presence, we come into worship, but we're thinking about a thousand other things. We come to God in prayer, and we're still thinking about a bunch of other things. She's in Jesus' presence. He's come into her home. But what is, Mary, what is Martha doing? She's all a flutter, isn't she? She's hyperactive. She can't sit and be still. She's running all over the place. She's just like we do so often in prayers where we just kind of run our mouth, and we say the things that we think, we think God wants to hear us say. So she's running around doing all the things that she, she thinks Jesus wants her to do. And yet, who is lauded? Who is lauded is Mary. Mary, what does she do? She just simply quietly sits in Jesus' presence. She sets aside what her sister does. Her sister is waiting on tables. Mary, she's waiting on Jesus. 
And to wait on Jesus, what does she do? She gets quiet. Literally in verse 5 of Psalm 62, David says, hush. The means of coming to a quiet place, a soul rest, is actually to still your mouth. To stop talking. I don't know about you, when I come into prayer, it's just, talk, 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 talk. It's like I'm verbally vomiting all over God's. And listen, there's a place for that, absolutely. And I'm going to talk about that very briefly at the end. But there is absolutely a place in meditation where we need to come to a place of quiet. There, you know, there's an old, old traditional practice within the history of the church. The old Catholic mystics understood it. It was the discipline of silence. Silence. To get quiet before the Lord. To read of God's word. It's called meditation. We think of meditation, I talked about this this past week in the dynamics of discipleship class, so it's been on my mind. Meditation, we think of meditation as being like Eastern mysticism, which is the whole idea of transcendental meditation is to, to remove everything from your mind. And then you just kind of, it just becomes vacuous. And then whatever idiotic, moronic things comes in, that's what you, you know, ponder on. That, that's not Christian meditation. Christian meditation is extremely rational. Christian meditation says this, quiet your heart. Stop thinking about all these things that are surrounding you and going through all these murmuring of your soul and instead quietly reflect on who God is and what he has done. That's Christian meditation. Brothers and sisters, let us not be afraid to get quiet, to be silent. It means you may have to change your devotional practices maybe just a little bit. To sit in silence before the Lord thinking, we think that silence is a waste of time. It's not. It's of great value. Get quiet before the Lord and let him speak to you from his words. It quiets our thoughts. It slows the pace of our thinking to get silent before God. This is what David has, and so he's got a soul at rest. That in the midst of his waiting, of longing and wondering, when God, when are you going to provide? So if you think about, think about David's situation, people are gossiping about him. If you know, if you've heard yesterday that someone in your office is slandering you, or you go home and someone, you hear someone in church is bad-mouthing you behind your back and you get up for prayer tomorrow morning, let me guess what you're going to be thinking about. Quieting your heart means you're resting who God is and what he has done and it gives peace to your soul. That's what's going on with David. He's waiting for God's provision, but he's doing so silently and quietly. But here's the question, how do we get such a soul disposition? That while we wait for God's provision, how do we come to a place of sweet peace and rest before the Lord where we can even be quiet? You know, we sat, we had that brief moment, right? Right at the beginning of worship where we were quiet. Don't you hate that when we do that? It's unnerving, isn't it? To get quiet before the Lord. But that's, how do we get there? We're, we, we, have, we don't understand that. We have no muscles for that discipline. I think David helps us understand how to get there and he does it in this way. He points us to the foundation of, of waiting, what we need, and we need a hope. David has two audiences in verses 5 through 8. First, he talks to himself. He says, wait in silence. He commands his soul, but he says why you should wait in silence. For your hope is from the Lord's. And then he changes, almost kind of like, and he talks to us. It's like David is going on in a narrative where he's talking to himself, and all of a sudden, kind of like Bugs Bunny did, right? Where he would, you know, go, he'd be talking to Elmer Fudd, and all of a sudden he would turn and he would face the screen and he would go, you know, of course, that this means war. 
And this is what David does. He's talking to his own soul, and then he turns and he looks and he faces us, and he says, you know what? This is what you must do. You must get quiet, and you must trust in the Lord. Hope and trust, this is the foundation of waiting, of right resting before the Lord as we wait for his provision. David points to two aspects, though, in particular. There's many things that we can look at, but David points to two aspects of God's character that help him hope and trust in the Lord, that give us reasons to hope and trust in the Lord. Look at verse 11, at the very end. What he does in verses 9 and 10 versus verse 11 is he compares the things that we can look at. We can, we can hope in our own practices like robbery and extortion, or we can trust in God, as he talks about in verse 11, in God's character and his provision. And so here's the root of our hope, is God's character in these two aspects. He says this in verse 11, Once God has spoken, twice I have heard this, and here's the two things, that power belongs to God, and second, that to him belongs steadfast love. Power and steadfast love. There's a third there about God being the judge that reflects actually very specifically to what David longs to see in regards to those who are slandering and gossiping him. But more generically, it's God's power and God's love for all of us is what we must focus on. God's character of power and love. This is what he's trusting and hoping in. And it's by rooting himself in God's power and God's love that he comes to a place of soul rest as he waits for the day of God's provision. Let me give you two illustrations to try to drive this home and to draw this out. We must have both God's power and God's love, and we must root ourselves and meditate on these things. If we're going to come to a place where we can wait restfully. And um, one of the books, Chronicle of the Chronicles of the Narnia series, it's actually the last one that, that Lewis wrote, but it's the first one chronologically. It's called The Magician's Nephew. It's the, kind of the creation account. And Lewis there writes about a young boy named Diggory Kirk. Uh, Diggory Kirk, in, this, in the setting of the book, his mother is very, very ill. And almost to the point of death. But at one point, Diggory kind of drops into Narnia, right as Narnia is being created. And so he witnesses Aslan's great power as he goes and he he creates this Narnia world. And Diggory realizes and he sees that this great Aslan, who's the God figure in the books, that this great lion has great power. And perhaps this lion, maybe he had the power to heal his mother. Well, one point in the book in which Aslan comes to Diggory and he's going to ask him to, to help him with the task, Diggory has done something that is, has upset uh, the kind of the, the um, equilibrium of, of Narnia, and so uh, Aslan's wanting his, Diggory's help. And Diggory thinks to himself, perhaps maybe I'll say yes, but say to Aslan, if you'll heal my mother. But he decides it's not a good idea to um, try to uh, have a debate with a lion. So instead, he says, yes, I will do what you ask. But then he's so overwhelmed as he thinks about his mother and he thinks about the hope that Aslan might bring that he begins to weep and tearfully and stammeringly he says, would you, would you, would you heal my mother? And he's looking at this whole time that he has this conversation with Aslan, he's looking down at the lion's great paws, the power of them, and he's focused on them. And he understands that Aslan has the power of them, but he's quite unsure whether Aslan will actually want to heal his mother. Until the next thing that happens, which is this. He lifts up his eyes from the great paws of the lion, and there he finds that Aslan is standing right before him, his eyes close to his, and this is what Lewis says. There the boy looked, and there the lion's face stood, and it shocked him, for he says this, the tawny face of the lion was bent down close to his own, and wonders of wonders, great shining tears 
shone in the lion's eyes. They were such big, bright tears compared to his own that Diggory realized that the lion must feel love for his mother that Diggory couldn't even feel. What did Diggory realize? When he looked at the paws, he realized the lion had the power, the power to change his mother, to heal his mother. But God's power and God's love are always wed together. And when he saw the lion's eyes and the weeping of the lion, he saw the love of the lion for his mom. When you, what do you, you get there? Do you see this? The power and love of God. These character, characteristics of God wed together. They give us trust and faith as we wait. Let me give you a specific example from the scriptures. In Mark 5, there's a man named Jairus. Jairus is a prominent man. He's part of the religious synagogue. He's wealthy. He's moral. He has a sick daughter. And he runs up to Jesus in Mark 5, and he pleads with Jesus, will you come heal my daughter? She's on the verge of death. And Jesus says, yes, there's hope. And you actually feel the narrative begin to pick up pace for just a brief moment. Yes, and there Jesus followed by this great crowd. They begin to move towards Jairus' house. But then suddenly, it's like the DJ has scratched the records. There's a woman who pops up through the crowd and touches Jesus, and he feels his power come out. This woman has had an issue of bleeding for many, many years. It's a chronic problem, not an acute issue. It's a chronic issue. It didn't have to be dealt with in this moment. But she comes and she touches Jesus' cloak and she's immediately healed. Great, the work is done. But what does Jesus do? In the midst of the crowd, Jesus stops. He stops the rush of the ambulance. He is the divine ambulance to go heal this girl. But he stops the crowd and he wants to have a conversation with this woman who has just been healed. Okay, put yourself in Jairus' shoes in this moment. Um, God, this is not good timing. She's healed. She's good to go. Why are you having a conversation with this woman? You can go find her later, right? Tim Keller, who talks about this same story in one of his sermon on this same passage, actually says that Jesus would be accused of divine malpractice. If you're a doctor, Eric Hines, an ER doc, if you come in and somebody has the flu and they're, they're sick and they need to be cared for, absolutely, but someone comes in, and they've been shot through a main artery. Which one do you care for first? It's called triaging, and it's obvious. You deal with the acute issue, the one that is going to kill someone in that moment. But here, yet Jesus stops and deals with the chronic problem. What we see here is God's timing is not our timing, but there's grace in the timing. Well, things get worse in the story with Jairus, because one of his servants runs up, and he says, don't bother the master any longer. Your daughter is now dead. And Jesus does what he so often forces us to do. He turns to Jairus and he says, wait. Trust me. So they carry on. They walk. There's no rush at this point anymore. They head to Jairus' house. Jesus enters in where the people are weeping. And he says, quiet, hush. She is merely sleeping. It's laughable. It's offensive that he would say such a thing. Then he goes up to the little girl's room. And there he comes close to her, and he puts his hands on the little girl, and he says this, Talitha kum. Talitha kum, which means this, little girl, arise. And the wonderful thing is she does. Here's the point of that story and that phrase, Talitha kum. Talitha kum, we see two things here going on. When Jesus says, arise, what is he doing? 
He's showing God's power, isn't he? With a word, Jesus has the power to destroy death. With a word, he can overcome death. That's God's power. But Jairus has got to be questioning the whole time, does Jesus really love, what what is going on here? I'm a moral man. I've come, I've, I've thrown myself at his feet. Does Jesus love me? Does Jesus love my daughter? Well, Talitha Kum shows that he does. See, he says arise, showing his power. He can defeat death. But when he says Talitha, Talitha is a pet name. We call my daughter, my daughter's name is Lila Tove. For some reason over the years, we just called her Tophers for her middle name. Tophers, kind of like gophers, just Tophers. It's a pet name. It's a term of endearment. Really only her mom and her dad use it to talk to her. This is what Jesus does when he enters into this little girl's room. He says, little girl, Talitha, a pet name, a name of intimacy. It's the type of phrase that only a father would use. What are we seeing? Brothers and sisters, we wait. God's timing is not our own. It's difficult for us to see it. But what you must realize is, one, God has the power to give you what you long for. But then, two, maybe more importantly in this, is you must see that he has a fatherly love for you. And these two characteristics go hand in hand together. And the more we meditate on these two things, we will come to a place where we can trust in God's timing and the grace of God's timing. You can trust one like this who who can raise you from the dead and has the fatherly love like Jesus. Because God is all-powerful, it means means that nothing outside of his will can hold him back. In the Attributes of God series, which just ended today, one of the attributes you looked at is God's omnipotence. That there is nothing outside of God that is powerful enough to stop him and his will. So that's one aspect of God's character. But we must also see that God's love... Well, God's love means this, that if there's nothing that can stop God's will for your life, it means your waiting is not a mistake. And God's love means if you are waiting, you are waiting for this reason, this reason alone. God loves you. Young mom or young wife who longs to have a baby and you've yet to be able to get pregnant, the reason why you are not yet pregnant is because God loves you. One of the great things we see throughout Scripture is this. It's, it comes up over and over and over again. We have all these infertile women all through the Scriptures, and then God has the power in a moment, and they can have a baby. God has the power. Therefore, why are you waiting? It's because God loves you. That's the only other answer. Single person, are you waiting for a spouse? You're tired. You're tired of feeling lonely. You're longing for that day. The reason why you don't have a spouse is because God loves you. My sister's here, and it reminds me of one of the most poignant moments of my life. It happened about almost two years ago. Um, around the same time that we were pursuing adoption, uh, my sister was pursuing adoption as well. And uh, we had gone through the whole home study issue, and it had taken, felt like it just muddled through it, took forever and ever uh, in the state of Georgia. Well, Florida's process is a little bit quicker. And my sister and her husband, they went through... Uh, the process it seemed like that at least from our perspective as people who were waiting and so one day it was a tuesday afternoon i was sitting with jim whittle who preached last week jim and i get together every couple months because he's an older pastor and he tells me what not to do young pastors they tell you what to do old pastors i get to them and they just say here let me help you help, help you not screw it up 
you don't screw it up, and God will do good things. So we meet, and he tells me what to do or what not to do. But Jim and I were having lunch together, and I got a text from Hannah on, a tu- on, on that Tuesday or, or from Meredith. On Monday, Hannah and her husband had turned in, finally gotten approved for their home study. On Tuesday, a mother picked them to be their parent, their, their child's parents. Same agency. They didn't wait 24 hours to get selected. We've been waiting for months. Now, in that moment, I was happy for my sister. But there was, there was something, right? There was, you're, if you're a single person, you go to a wedding, it reminds you of your loneliness, of the fact that you're not married. You see all these babies being born, reminds you of the fact that you don't have a baby yet. Whatever it may be, in that moment, it was exasperating, agitating to my waiting. While I was sharing this with Jim, as we were just kind of wrestling through, that yes, we were jealous, and I was confessing that I thought this was rather um, not very gracious of God to let my sister and her husband have a child before us, uh, and, and that, frankly, it was ridiculous since we were better parents than them anyways, um, and um, so she'd only have been a mom for nine months at that point anyways, and so I figured, this is kind of ridiculous, God, and so we're, I'm sharing this to Jim as we're walking out, and he gets in his car, and I'm walking over to my car, and he ends up driving past, and it was a poignant moment, he rolled down his window, and he said, Andrew, the reason why God hasn't given you a baby yet is because he loves you. Rolled up the window and left. Yeah, let's praise Jesus that Andrew Henley doesn't get what he wants. Because God loves me more than I love me. God never promises a reason for your waiting. He doesn't. What are you waiting on? He only promises to say that I love you in it. And I provided for you. And you ask the question, how do we know? How do we know God loves us? How do we know he's powerful enough to provide what I'm waiting for? Well, because the cross says it. You ever, it's, it's, it's rarely Jesus offers an answer for why we're waiting. But he does offer himself, doesn't he? All the, in these places, David says this. He says, God is my hope. He's my rock. He's my fortress. It's interesting. What if those aren't just mere concepts, but those things are a person? Jesus is my rock. He is my fortress. He is my refuge. How do we know he's those things? Because it says this in the Gospels, that if God would give us his son, how much more will he give us all things? The cross is the final answer that says that God has the power to defeat death, and he has the love to do it on our behalf. Therefore, everything else in your life, the answer can only and finally be, it's there because he loves you. All right, come to the close real briefly. We can run out of time. Lastly, some practices for waiting. You still want something to do, right? While you wait. Three practices really quickly. One, you've got to repent of hoping falsely. Three adverbs. Try to make it kind of kitschy. Repent of hoping falsely. In verse 9, what does David tell us? David tells us what not to trust in. Don't trust in your own ingenuity when you're waiting. It always gets you in trouble. Gets you in trouble. What does he say? Don't trust in low people and high people. They're but a breath. Don't turn to extortion or robbery. Don't turn to riches to get you what you want. Put no trust in these things. We all, we all have secondary saviors that we go to. God, you're not working out for me in this moment, so I've got something else I'm going to turn to. We'll turn to God B. God 2.0. We'll turn to him. The temptation in a season of waiting is to take matters into our own hands to the point of disobedience. There's two great examples of this in the scriptures, right? There's Abraham. 
He's waiting for a child. He makes a critical error at one point, doesn't he? He stops waiting, and he takes matters into his own hands. And we've had some problems in the Middle East ever since. Lack of waiting can cause some serious issues. Saul, right? He's waiting for the prophet of God to come make the sacrifices before they run off the battle. What does Saul do? I'll just do it myself. Just do it myself. Listen, I'm not saying here that if you're waiting for something and you long for something, that God has not called you to take certain actions to get that something. The issue is, are you trusting? What does it say in the, in the psalm? If you have wealth and riches, don't trust in those things. So yes, if you have the means to bring about what you long, what you've been waiting for, if someone says, comes to you and says, will you marry me? You're not going, well, I don't know. You can say yes. If you want to get married, men, you should ask a girl out on a date, right? You can take action. That is not disobedient, but you're not trusting in these things ultimately to give you what you want. And you certainly are not trusting in those things because when you ultimately trust in those things, when they become an idol in the God to answer your waiting, you know what you end up doing? You end up disobeying God like Abraham and Saul. So, you wait. You wait. First, you repent by what you hope in falsely. Second, you worship loudly. Before we can get a quiet of soul, we got to get loud, brothers and sisters. What does David do in verses 5 through 8? He says to his soul, wait silently. And then what does he do? It seems like he's shouting from the rooftops all of God's character qualities. God is my hope. God is my refuge. God is my fortress. God is my glory. What does he do? He goes and worships. you got to worship. That's God's power and that's God's love. For us in our waiting, we need to focus on God's character and particularly what we, as it interacts with our area of waiting. Listen, you're waiting for a spouse. God is the lover of my soul. God is always with me. He will never leave me or forsake me. God is my portion of my cup. You're waiting for healing this morning. You're sick and tired of feeling bad. God is the creator of my body. He has declared it good. I am an image bearer of God. God has taken on flesh and Jesus. God has said that he will give me a new and glorious body. God is the healer. God has risen from the dead, defeating death. This brings out, you focus on and meditate and worship God for these things as they engage with your area of waiting. You see, worship helps us, helps us enjoy the waiting. You know why? Because there's, remember I talked about the beginning, there's the pain of longing, but there's also the joy of anticipation. Worship helps engage with the anticipation. Think about Jacob in the Old Testament. He worked seven years to get Rachel. And then Laban tricked him and gave him Leah. And so they struck up another deal, and he had to work seven more years to get Rachel. But what is it, how does it describe how he viewed those seven years? It says this in Genesis 29, 20. They seemed to him, these seven years, as but a few days because of the love he had for her. Brothers and sisters, you are, you're waiting, and it feels like it's interminable. Fall in love with God. We spend time worshiping him and anticipating the longing of his return when all other blessings will be yours in Christ Jesus. Third, And finally, pour out your heart prayerfully. What is David's command to us? He says this in verse 8, Trust in him at all times, O people. Then the what? Oh, pour out your heart before him. Once again, before you can get quiet, you've got to get loud. Before you get quiet, you've got to get loud. You may have to dump on the Lord. You may have to talk, 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 talk. You may have to do some processing. 
But a quiet, resting soul is one who has worshipped God for all the aspects of his character, for his love and for his power that has come to voice all who he is. And then in light of God's character has dumped on him all your longings, all your waitings, all your desires. And then what happens? Listen, if you, you may have experienced this. If you've, if you've ever had time you actually prayed long enough, if you spent a long enough time in God's presence, eventually you know what happens? You stop talking and you get quiet. And you just get to rest. God, you are powerful. And God, you are loving. And so in light of that, I pray that I trust in your timing as to when you're going to give me the baby and when you're going to give me the spouse and when you're going to heal my body. And now I just sit in your presence and rest. There's nothing else for me to do. Except maybe pray a little bit more. And so let's do that. Let's pray. God, I, I just, I, I don't know where everybody in this room is at. <coughs> Lord, I know we're all waiting for something, though. And so, God, I pray that you would, um, this afternoon, that I know my tendency, I forget my sermon. I'm the one who preaches it. I forget it by this afternoon. And so, God, I, I, I pray that this, this afternoon, Lord, may a Sabbath be had by all these folks, a true rest in which maybe they get quiet for 30 minutes, for an hour. Maybe they'll sleep, God. Maybe they need a nap. But on the way into that sleep and maybe on the way out of that sleep, they'll sit and they'll reflect on your character. And they'll lay their, their needs and their desires. They'll, they'll lay their waitings before you. God, I pray that they would be conscious and intentional about taking the places where they're most feeling the pain of longing and of waiting. And they would apply your sweet gospel, the truth of your power and your love, to that area of their life. That we would not just walk out of here and be happy with the platitudes and the sentiments. But Lord, your, your spirit would apply it to our very souls. God, I pray for quiet spirits, a restful heart. That would be such a joy, God. So I pray that on my behalf, and I pray that on the behalf of these who sit here this morning. I pray all of these things in the name of Jesus. Amen.